1968 saw an explosion of feminist discussions, women coming together to critique established practices. But why did this happen? Why then? And how can we rekindle that awakening? To learn more, I'm joined by Elizabeth J. Friedman, Professor of Politics at the University of San Francisco. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so tell me, this idea of consciousness raising, what does that mean and what caused it? Okay, so we're really linking consciousness raising to, as you said, an explosion of women's activism, which I would date slightly after 1968 in terms of the really explosive part where you saw hundreds and thousands of women engaging in women's liberation-oriented activism. Um, so what I'm finding is that the social movement repertoire mm -hmm. of consciousness raising as both theory and method for women's liberation was something that was concretized most visibly in the United States, but was really being diffused transnationally. It also had transnational roots. Mm -hmm. And the 68 mobilizations, particularly among young people, particularly among students, were a fertile context mm -hmm. in which particularly younger, but not exclusively younger women, mm -hmm. realized that they had their own liberation battles. What we call that in the social, social movement literature mm -hmm. is the process of building a collective identity. Yeah. Right. And of course, I'm sure all your listeners mm -hmm. know that this was not the only period in which you saw a very visible upsurge of activism mainly by women on behalf of women's you know, status and, and shifting that status. Um, so, but, that's what, such, but, but what was really innovative mm. about this organizing repertoire yes. was that it was simultaneously, again, method and theory. Right. And that it spread so quickly. And one of the reasons I think that it spread so quickly is that it was rooted in the fundamental importance of women sharing their own experience of their own oppression. And before I go any mm -hmm. farther, I want to acknowledge again the sophistication of your listeners who by now are saying, women, mm. which women, right? Sure. right? Because mm. right, it's 2019 yeah. and nobody thinks that women is a unitary category. Absolutely. Gender identity aside, as consciousness raising as a method was developing, mm people who were engaging with it were also critiquing the dominant way it went forward, which was based on an assumption that when women got together mm. and shared their experiences, mm. they would always find commonalities. Mm. Mm. Because of course, for many women, particularly women at the intersection of many forms of oppression, mm -hmm. when they would share their experiences, right, particularly with women from dominant classes, educational mm -hmm. backgrounds, and uh, uh, higher up on whiteness hierarchies, yes, yes. they would think, they would immediately find that they didn't have that many experiences in common. However, this idea, and let me just rehearse the consciousness raising Please sort do. of organizing method, that in a small group, mm -hmm. the initial step to building collective identity towards liberation would be to draw on your own experience, mm -hmm. that politics of experience, mm -hmm. right, was hugely generative. And the idea was that there were going to be three stages. First, you share those experiences, 
Then, and this is why it was a theory, it was an epistemology, really. We are going to extract from those common experiences mm -hmm. to understand how oppression works. Mm. And then, of course, the third step is the praxis. Mm. We are then going to build from our understanding of how mm. oppression works to fight our oppression. Right. So that was the idea that it was simultaneously method and theory mm. that really caught on. Mm. But I, from, from the work I've done on this so far and how it, trans, it, it mm. traveled mm. outside mm. of the United yes. States to many other geographical regions, mm was that it was really that rooting in the politics of experience that yes. made it so powerful yes. as an organizing mechanism. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that is really clear when you look back at women's experience during that period, which is sort of you know late mm -hmm. 60s into the 70s, was that from the beginning, women of color, and particularly queer women of color, mm -hmm. understood those practices in the dominant society right, among the women's mm -hmm. liberation movement as fairly exclusive, but they simultaneously use consciousness-raising practices in order to articulate their critiques. Yes, and I think um, Shireen Hassim has done really important work on this in the context of the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, how it was coming, through coming together, a couple of things happened. Like, without that process of collective reflection, one... We may feel that no one else supports us. And so, you know, we, assume, we just see everyone else going along with these things. And so we don't feel that we'll be supported if we complain about gender-based violence or if we complain about having a huge volume of care work or if we complain about sexual harassment. So you sort of just individualize these strategies. And Shireen Hassim talks about how through speaking about them and hearing that your peers undergo these same challenges, you realize that it's not just an individual problem to manage by yourself, but rather a structural axis of oppression that many women experience that same problem. And it's caused not just by your particular husband being difficult, mm -hmm. but it's a, a broader phenomenon relating to the patriarchy. And so through hearing others talk about it, people become emboldened, they feel supported, and then that gives them the confidence and the safe space to articulate some of those concerns and explore them together. Because without that, without that, you know, for example, there's lots of research showing that women might oppose legislation on female employment and instead support uh, legislation uh, that champions men because they look to men as breadwinners. You know, if you look to men as providers, then again, you might not be supporting other women. But if you come to develop that identity as women and realize the importance of legislation that protects women's economic rights, then that really changes your political campaigns, what you think is possible and all sorts of things. Absolutely. But then you can see why it's so important who who's in the room right. when you are articulating your experience of oppression and, of course, how it is that you want to go about changing the situation. Mm -hmm. right? So one of the critiques that black women right. articulated against some of the um, assumptions that were coming out of, again, consciousness-raising groups that mainly included women from the middle class with educational yeah. and race privilege was that their ideas about oppression within the family right. yes. would be very different yeah, in sure. black communities that were often struggling to keep their families together yes. Yes. Right against a power structure that was, say, through the welfare system, trying to effectively smash open their families yes. and not treating parents with respect, with, res you know, with regards to their relationship with their children and a host of other issues. So I think that 
that is something, that sort of conundrum, yes, that always comes up when you pick one single identity around which to organize. Yeah, if anyone universalizes from their own particular exactly. struggles. Now, having said that, mm-hmm. again, the consciousness raising method mm-hmm. and theory itself continue to be generative in different spaces. Right, so that method can be really important about sharing and articulating your concerns and realising wider support. The problem is when you extrapolate and assume external validity that everyone else shares my particular... You may remember that in the 1970s, one example of how consciousness raising came together with a sort of women's health movement was through, right, um, women's gynecological self-examinations. What? I didn't know about this. Oh, yes. With speculums and mirrors and getting women in touch with what their genitalia looked like. So that was and like how a they group function. activity? And that was a group activity. Okay. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> no, Which, I'm sure yes. I'm all for oh, it. No, I'm all for it. And, but you can imagine your reaction, as I assume a <laughs> feminist. Instance, I've just got bright red and awkwardness. <laughs> Right, But if you think about that... My British prudish self. <laughs> and it was happening in Britain as well, I believe. Right, okay. Right? But, but you could imagine that the media would have a field day with this. Yeah, for sure. Whereas feminists were saying in, in mm. the United States, well, if we're really going to think about women's oppression, we know it's rooted... Right in their no, absolutely, and the and the shame of, for example, that periods are seen as a terrible, shameful thing, and one must hide all evidence that one has it. You know this, you know, very awkward bodily experience. So yeah, and women's sexual pleasure not being absolutely. recognized and never on so, media. Exactly. Yeah. You know. No, I'm all for it. Yes, more oh. gynecological group examinations. Right. <laughs> well, evidently, there's a renaissance of this. <laughs> really? Yes, I can put you in touch with a scholar who's studying. Okay, okay, right, let me compose myself. Yes, so, okay. what were the other points of discussion? What were the, I, so I guess that varies across the world. Exactly, so it varied across the world. So let mm. me give you an example yes. from the work that I'm presenting at the conference. Please. Consciousness raising really took off in Italy mm. to the point where women's organizations that didn't do it weren't considered feminist. Right. Right, so it was sort of seen as your entry into feminism. But the way that Italian feminists practice consciousness raising, and of course I'm going to, again, generalize here, Mm. had a lot to do with the Italian context of 1968, Mm. right? So when Italian feminists started to articulate, for example, the need for women to come together in gender-exclusive spaces for the autonomous development of their own politics, Mm. they were really reflecting what the new left in Italy, we're doing, we're, um, we're sort of throwing back at the old left, at yes. the sort of institutionalized left, as a sort of left that insisted on incorporating everything through the communist and socialist parties mm-hmm. and movements, rather than having, you know, social movements articulating their own politics. So mm-hmm. it, was, it really had to do with their own, con- um, their own context. Also, in the Italian translation of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, raising instead of calling it consciousness raising, they called it self consciousness, but not in the way that English mm. language speakers mm-hmm. think of it. Oh, oh, I'm so self conscious. I I can't believe you're looking at me. That kind of thing. It was more that what our goal is mm-hmm. in our consciousness raising mm. groups mm. is to articulate a new sense of our 
very selves. Mm -hmm. We don't know what they are because they have been told to us by men. Right? Mm-hmm. So that was really an Itali- a very important thread mm-hmm. in the Italian practice mm-hmm. that eventually was, was also, of course, influenced by what was going on with French feminism, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And sort of took on its own hybrid dynamism mm-hmm. within the Italian feminist scene. Mm-hmm. Do we have any kind of research about how impactful these social consciousness raising like, how, how can we evaluate their effectiveness? Is yes, that possible? You're such a good social scientist here. So consciousness raising has been critiqued and really? critiqued and critiqued. What people, some people don't think it had any oh, different, made any difference? Not that it didn't make any difference. Okay, so the generally accepted rule is that consciousness raising raised people's consciousness. Okay. In other words, it helped to create that, uh, that collective identity yes. as women who perhaps among many other, you know, sort of sources of discrimination and oppression mm. were experiencing oppression on the base of a social relation of power, yes, yes. the social structures mm. yes. you alluded to earlier. So absolutely fundamental for that, uh-huh. for the sort of creation of what we now think of as feminist consciousness. Right, right. Part of feminist consciousness. I'm with it, yes. Right, okay. That came out of Consciousness raising. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. So, yes. And that's, well, A, I think that's been undervalued. I mm-hmm. think that that is so fundamental. Yeah. So fundamental. If you think about it, because without a collective identity, then how are you going to build the movement, right? No, absolutely. But once there was that idea that feminist identity and the issues of the women's liberation Mm -hmm. movement were in the media and people could find out about them, Mm -hmm. then this sort of critique of the consciousness-raising groups grew up. They were structureless. They tended to eat their leadership. They dissolved into catfights. And worst of all, they wouldn't undergird the sort of hardcore institutional development that we need if we're going to engage with formal politics. However, when you look into the development of what we might think of as the feminist architecture Mm. of women's movements, the or inf- architecture infrastructure the bookstores the women's spaces the women's centers right sort of one example after another of the concretization of feminist movements it turns out that many of those were inspired by people's experience of consciousness raising so i would assert that actually that feminist architecture that feminist infrastructure was in many ways not just made possible by feminist consciousness, but it literally grew out of the relationships that formed in these groups. That's a really good point about the, re- the need for really in-depth, qualitative, archival, historical yes. research to look at the way, to look at the myriad trickle-down effects of consciousness raising because if you just think right so let's check attitudes before and after or let's look at the number of formal organizations registered then you might not tap into all that yes i give you a wonderful example please please this year i've had the great good fortune of living in saint paul minneapolis right yes and in saint paul minneapolis it is known in some circles as having the first women, battered women's shelter. Mm-hmm. That battered women's shelter was formed by women who met 
in a consciousness-raising group. Today, it's a complex organization that thinks not only about protecting women and their children during a period of crisis, but why those women get into that situation in the first place mm. and how they're being served by the community after they transition out of temporary housing. Mm, mm, mm. Right? So that's such a concrete example. Yes, yes. Right? Mm. And that organization is now 40 years old. Mm. It's a multi-million dollar organization. It's inspired and worked with other organizations in that community. That kind of infrastructure came out of consciousness raising. Okay. So the Me Too movement and its various manifestations yes, yes, around the globe yes. has galvanized mm. mass mobilization, mm. right? And what's fascinating is that Me Too is a form of sharing people's yeah, personal yes. experiences. Mm. So that might seem to be consciousness raising 101 mm. on a mass scale. However, the way it's being articulated through social media tends to be not an intimate sharing right. in a small group of people who are building solidarity and collective identity, but shouting it through social media to whoever is following you. And that's, that's a very different place to start, to immediately go public with your experience rather than using your experience to build that sort of solidarity and identity and then strategize, then theorize why this is happening and then strategize what we should do. So it's a really different kind of use of the politics of experience. And so it might be that the, if, if we're interested in seeing a renaissance of the power of consciousness raising, that to take up the idea of coming back together in more intimate groups would be a strategy to somehow right, develop and transmit. Now I say that I'm sure it's happening. Yeah, I, I think the, the Me Too probably th process probably happens on two levels. So for a long time, women did experience sexual harassment but didn't talk about it publicly because they didn't think they would be supported. They thought, there's, you know, what's she wearing? What was she drinking? What time was she out? You know, they didn't anticipate social support. But when you see people speak out against Weinstein and you see that they're widely supported by others, that emboldens and inspires more women to come forward publicly, exactly as you say. And as we see more and more people being publicly supported, that creates a snowballing positive feedback loop that people come to raise their expectations think yes I'll be supported so you see that happening right across the world mediated by different places but and mm -hmm. so that's the public event you you spoke about but I also think that may encourage more small-scale private processes absolutely alongside oh, it yeah, 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 yeah that's yeah. doubtless yeah the other thing is it's always hard to see no sure yeah what the ult ultimate there is no ultimate outcome mm. but what the outcomes mm. of a particular cycle of contention are mm. when you're in the middle of it yeah, we're no. clearly yes in a cycle of contention mm. Mm. right some people date it from 2016 for obvious reasons some people say oh no we have to look at the sort of you know the the different um rivers that came together to mm. create that kind of mobilization mm. some people would say Right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's yeah. very depending on where you're looking. We should also spend more time reflecting on the work that's already done yes. and is going forward, perhaps in a less visible way, no. until you learn to look for it. And then it is 
everywhere. Okay, so that I think that is my big takeaway from this discussion, that it's really important to do this qualitative, historical sort of tracing research, understanding individual narratives and group dynamics, as well as how they are mediated by big global events and specific national processes. You know, a lot of quantitative research will want to pick an independent variable, choose your dependent variable, and test the association between the two. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying is, whoa, 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 because you may not be picking the things that matter, and these things have these huge trickle-down iterative effects that don't look, you know, it won't have the same, the, the same dependent variable doesn't make sense in different places, you know, so you just oh, can't absolutely. build up that big data set that's comparative because it all has these very locally specific effects. Well, yes, absolutely. I do believe in that, mm. but I also think that there is room for a very wide range mm. of approaches to yeah. understanding, for example, how individuals end up articulating and then working on these social structural sources of oppression and power. Because I know, for example, that you're going to be speaking with Dr. Laurel Weldon. Yes who has spent her career carefully building data sets, not on her own, but in order to use those kinds of tools to understand, for example, the relationship between mass women's mobilization Mm. in a lot of of configurations and changes in different parts of the economy and society. So I'm... I'm for sort of yeah, methodological pluralism, pluralism yes. yeah. but I do think that it, that you will miss a lot of both what has happened in the past and what is happening in the present if you only think that we have to do the aggregations at the highest level possible. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I think the qualitative historical stuff helps us see what to look for in compiling quantitative data sets. And also I think there's a broader point that Political science and politics, we often focus on big public demonstrations or formal Mm. organisations of power, whereas feminists have always argued that we need to look at what's happening behind closed doors. You know, the private is political and never more so with consciousness raising. Yes, and maybe I can add one final thing to that, which is that the mass mobilisations we're seeing now happen, as people like to say, on and offline. Mm -hmm. I don't see that there's a bright line division between on and offline, and I've done research on that as Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. I think that when we understand, for example, this cycle of contention, we need to think about how individuals are articulating their collective identities wherever their consciousness goes. Yes. We are no longer separated from the kinds of devices that you're using to record this very conversation. Mm, 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 mm. And so when we articulate our sense of gender inequality through a tweet, that is part of how we see ourselves as part of a feminist mobilization, not just online, Mm -hmm. but holistically. Yeah, I am my Twitter account. Well, I don't know if I want you to go that far. You are more than your Twitter account, but your Twitter account, I'm afraid to say, is part of you. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Elizabeth J. Friedman, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.